Hey climbers, welcome back to Climb by VSC, a weekly show about building and scaling startups in the world of climate innovation. My name is Jacob Poor, general partner of VSC Ventures and co-host of Climb. Every week, I or a member of our VSC team will speak with a pioneer in the climate tech world about emerging technologies and novel ideas that will turn the tide on climate change. We've heard enough of the doom and gloom. It's time for stories about purpose-driven innovation that lead to sustainable, positive change. In today's episode, I got to chat with Stonely Baptiste Blue, one of the co-founders of Third Sphere, a firm that has been investing in climate solutions for nearly a decade. There are investors and startups that you'll know, like Bowery Farming, One Wheel, Cove, and many more. Stonely and I chatted about the many challenges that scaling quickly could bring to a startup in the climate tech world. And he shares some of the advice and experience that he's learned from working with some of these best companies who've overcome those hurdles. This was a really fun one for me to do because Third Sphere is a fund that I've admired for a long time. And I was so grateful to learn from Stonely's experience firsthand. I'm so happy that you've decided to join us. Now let's climb. Hey everyone, welcome to Climb by VSC. I am excited to have on today, Stonely Blue was the founding partner of Third Sphere, where he's focused on addressing climate change through company creation and scale. A little bit about Stonely, he has taught at University of Chicago's Booth School, as well as lectured at Harvard Business School and UC Berkeley. He was previously the founder of Vedio Cloud Solutions, an enterprise software company, which was acquired about an, a year after self-funded growth. He's a serial entrepreneur, having built five ventures spanning different sectors from tech to real estate, international markets in Brazil and Canada. So that's a little bit about our guest, but I'm excited to dig in with him about everything that Third Sphere is doing in climate investing. Stonely, thank you so much for joining me on Climb. Jay, thanks for having me. Amazing. So why don't we uh, jump into you know just a little bit about you and some background. You and your co-founder started this fund as Urban Us, which has evolved into Third Sphere. Um, let's let's start with your journey. What motivated you to tackle first urban tech and and now climate change? And as an operator and entrepreneur, why was starting a fund the the right approach to address these issues? Yeah, uh, about nine, well, ten years ago now, I had sold my last company, which was a, a software company. The the it was a cloud hosting automation platform, uh, and that capped off roughly ten years of random company building, for lack of a better phrase, of being an entrepreneur. Where you know there were some victories, some losses. Uh, but at the end of all of that, I realized that I didn't want to keep building companies just for profit seeking sake. I wanted to also have a mission and a big why as to what I was working on. And climate was something I had a lot of angst about, but also realized that there was still a lot of lack of um, angst in the world about it um, and a lack of awareness. And so I figured as an entrepreneur, this might mean there's an opportunity Uh I had also moved to, to Miami at the time um, to help do some ecosystem building, volunteering as a sort of mentor for other entrepreneurs, um, teaching software engineering um, while working on what to build next and realized that living in a city uh, presented its own challenges where I also saw an, on, an opportunity as an entrepreneur. And so marrying those two aha moments together I decided to work on building something to reduce traffic, to reduce the emissions from traffic, um, and to improve the quality of life of commuting. Uh, while working on that, I met Sean, uh, my, my co-founder who had moved out from New York and had been doing, had a similar epiphany of, uh, you know, wanting to work on mission driven and 
realizing that there was a huge opportunity at the intersection of climate and cities. And we decided not to become investors together at first. We just wanted to see who else was thinking about this intersection. And we wanted to help in whatever way we could, more entrepreneurs um, come to this epiphany and work on climate solutions. We believe that these, a big chunk of the solutions to solve the climate challenge would come from entrepreneurs, would come from startups. And urban tech was a phrase, a concept that we actually came up with to talk about urban innovation and smart city technology without saying either of those two things and to also work on climate and talk about climate without having to say climate, right? Which was still a contentious and debate, debated sort of concept. Um, and so urban tech really was, as we wanted to, it to be defined, um, urban innovation focused on sustainability and climate adaptation. And we built our first series of funds on that thesis, right? So everything climate that touches an urban system and we built a really good portfolio on that. I think what we realized at the end of roughly seven years of ad investing um, thesis, uh, all pre-seed and seed with many companies who had gone on to raise, I think 80% went on to raise subsequent rounding. A few, um, a handful had gone on to unicorn status and the other handful had exited. So we, we felt good about our progress and what we've done in the urban tech thesis. Also realized that solving the climate equation would require looking beyond the city. Uh, and we started looking at natural systems and industrial systems as well. And so urban didn't quite encapsulate everything we were doing and wanted to do. And so third sphere was an emergent sort of brand definition of who we were and what we were working on. It was in a way a coming out that we were always a climate fund, but now we were more unapologetic about it um, and open for business for everything, even if it's not just urban. Having said that, you know we're still very, sort of go to market, um, ready to deploy, ready to scale focused. So we're not investing in things that might save us 20, 30 years from now. We're investing in things that are ready to go uh, again within a year or so, ready to be deployed, ready to be adopted. There's customers now who want it. And I guess in homage to our original approach, which was we don't have to talk about climate to work on climate. We actually really like investments that are climate positive, planet positive, but the customers don't necessarily have to care about climate. What are two or three things that you've seen as a through line of the founders that work in and around government to build their companies um, that they do successfully? Or, or is there something about them as founders that you have found they need to be or they need to have if they're going to tackle a problem that interfaces with government in, in such a way? Yeah, I mean, I think if government is if you're selling the government, you really do need to be a people person and a great salesperson. I mean, there's no way around it, right? You have to make an appeal to the people behind the rules. And um, and you also have to go a few layers in of building champions and relationships because the biggest challenge with working with government um, is, you know, uh, offices, you know, people in office change, you know, strategies and motivations might change, rules might change. And you want to be able to have continuity, um, you know, in the in the early years where you're still building yourself as a sort of inevitable solution or a just recurring vendor. Um, and all of that requires understanding the government machine, understanding how to build um, relationships at multiple layers of, you know, your customer and understanding the customer. And so part of that is understanding that 
um, government folks don't like for non-government people to show up with the solution to all their problems without having spent any time truly understanding their problems. But it turns out that's true for a lot of customer categories. Um, and enterprise sales can be the same way. You have to understand the politics of the kinds of companies um, and you have to have multiple champions in case someone quits their job, whatever. Um, so in a way, government sales, some of the skills and traits that translate can translate from big enterprise sales to government sales. Um, but maybe, you know, 10x <laughs> the amount of skills. Um, again, not for the faint of heart. So, so the stars that we've seen that have worked out have either come from government themselves and were just like entrepreneurs that realize it later. Um, or they're really, really good salespeople who are just good at picking a customer group, building empathy, you know, sort of going on the ride alongs for enough time, learning how to speak the language, and then learning how to build an aggressive sales machine to capture market share. So we'll, we'll get off the government topic, uh, for a little bit, but, uh, one of the things that I found, uh, really interesting as I, you know, have been sort of tracking this industry, there were about 80 new venture funds focused on climate that were raised just in the last year, which on one hand is great. On the other hand, what I'm seeing is a lot of these funds lead with a software first business market innovation first strategy, as opposed to, you know, the, the lower carbons of the world or, or some of these funds that are really focused on hard tech, really talking about, you know, having new energy sources or new sort of, you know, grid innovation to, to really have, I don't know, uh, a transference of, of, of energy. And I guess what I'm trying to think about is like, we are talking about a problem in the real world, right? Uh, atoms, not bits. Is it possible for us as venture investors to really move the needle forward and drive good returns from our LPs if we are just focused on software? And I'm curious for your thoughts on that, given that you've made investments both on, you know, hardware and hard tech, but then also had success with with companies and software in this category. Yeah, I mean, I think um, venture has forgotten how well uh, we've done as an industry on hardware, uh, both in the early days and along the years. There's an attractive um, uh, sort of appeal to a pure software. Um, you know, opportunity where you can imagine the costs curving towards zero and sort of the infinite replicability. Um, and, uh, you know, and you also get constant reminders of the frequency of sort of transactions in the enterprise SaaS side of, of, of our industry, right? And so it seems like if you want to make quote unquote easy money in venture, you should be an enterprise SaaS investor. Um, as it turns out, there are challenges to building enterprise SaaS and, you know, some of this, some of the growth and successes follow the trends of the macro environment. So there's no guarantee there, um, that you'll make money there either. Um, but it also turns out that, um, there are probably significantly bigger upside opportunities in hardware companies. And one good example is Google versus Apple. Google is one of the best investments someone could have made in, in their life, um, of course. And it's just, you know, the, but there were only a few investors in, in Google and it's gone on to become a very successful and valuable company, as we all know. Um, but when you look at a company like Apple or a company like Tesla, two of some of the most, you know, Apple being the, the most valuable company in the world, 
and you look at who their stakeholders and investors were um, over the their life of getting getting off the ground and getting to scale, it's it's a lot of debt. It's a lot of different investment stages, um, a lot of different kinds of investors, and that's because they had hardware, right? And so they had both the need to bring in more and different kinds of capital, but also the advantage of having different kinds of stakeholders aligned with seeing them succeed. And, you know, again, the outcome being Apple is the most valuable company. And if you look at who are the most valuable companies in the world, they tend to have some hardware component. Um, and so I think that there, we need to move past this hardware versus software um, sort of uh, common um, ism um, and embrace the fact that, you know, hardware might be uh, quote unquote hard, uh, but, you know, as we're seeing recently, FinTech is also very, very hard. Software generally is, is hard. Success is hard, period. Um, but, you know, it's like, what battle do you want to choose? And do you want to learn? What game do you want to choose? And do you want to learn the rules? And to your point, as it turns out, climate is a physical world challenge. And yes, there are some pure software opportunities um, to help um, the, 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 in the climate battle and capture some of the opportunity. Um, but some of the, the biggest opportunities will be um, will have some hardware component, either as the main thing or it's software enabling hardware. As our fund has invested both in hardware and software, I always sort of come back to the adage that, you know, money in venture is made on outliers, right? The, the, the power law is, is the guiding principle of our business. And therefore, it's all about having ownership and outliers. And if everybody is under the sort of false belief that, they can build venture scale outcomes focused on software and everybody's sort of going in that direction. Then as a new fund, especially, but I mean, you know, even for folks like you that have been at this for, for a decade, then the opportunity clearly lies where everybody else isn't looking. And so, so we've sort of applied that principle, um, you know, going forward again, accepting some of those same challenges that yes, it is a long time to, to really hit um, scale or, or, or really hit market adoption. But once you get there, it makes for a really great repeatable motion. Yeah, exactly. And and more defensible, right? That all those sort of moats you had to build to get to where you are, it's, it's someone's not going to be able to turn around and do the same thing in a week, right? It might take them less time because you've set, you've created, carved a path, but hardware, um, again, because of the natural frictions of it being physical, um, will always give you a running start once you've made, once you've unlocked. Whereas with software, I, you know, I'm not, I'm nowhere near the best software developer in the world. And I don't see a piece of software anywhere that I'm like, eh, if I had a weekend, I could take a crack at that. Um, you know what I mean? Like if I see really great hardware, I'm like, yeah, you, you keep doing your great work. Cause I don't think I could replicate that at all. And then, but then the same thing goes with like regulatory plays, right? I'm building this thing because regulations, I'm gonna lobby and get regulations in my favor. Once you unlock, once you lower that drawbridge, everyone else can also come through that drawbridge or once you unlock, this scientific breakthrough, um, it's sort of, you know, carte, carte blanche for everyone else to also replicate and conquer territory that you've spent time and money trying to conquer, which is, which is another reason why we like post science, science risk things. Because mm. it turns out science, of course, is hard, but even harder is building for adoption and scale, finding customers, getting them to adopt, scaling that adoption, like company building is really hard. And you've got a lot of new climate funds that think it's all about science and making the case for how much carbon emissions they're projecting that they're going to be able to capture or, or abate or whatever. 
Um, but no one's stopping to think, well, can we, do we actually know how to pick companies that are going to survive and grow and, and thrive and scale? Um, and especially even through a climate, you know, winter, <laughs> for lack of a, a less punny um, concept, you know, because this current fervor and enthusiasm around climate um, won't won't persist forever. Like the problem isn't going away, but there'll be other problems that will distract people for periods of time. I am curious for your perspective on this. This isn't kind of sort of a little bit more philosophical than practical, but there are funds that we see that focus on specific gigaton reduction targets when they are making an investment in climate companies. And there are funds that are more of like a vibe check, right? Like, is this a directionally positive move? but we're not going to hold you to any thresholds. Um, where do you sit on that spectrum? And how do you evaluate the companies that are, that are pitching you as to their sort of net positive reduction? I actually think it's fine to have directional motivation, right? There's the North Star. That's where we're heading towards. We're only going to invest in things that are climate or planet positive. And it's also fine to say, we're, we have a very specific numerical goal that we're trying to hit. Um, in execution, though, there's a spectrum of really doing the thing that you said you were going to do and, and not, right? And, and there's a lot of thesis drift in venture, like hot deal, you know, really exciting co-investors inviting us into the deal. We're going to make an exception and do this thing that has nothing to do with our thesis. Like that happens every day in venture. Um, it's something we avoid and we, we've been able to successfully avoid, um, but it's, but it does happen. And so then like the more you're on the true North side of things of your intent, and then you're doing random stuff, it's like, okay, you're not truly a thesis driven fund. You just want to have a brand uh, around that thesis, but it's not what you actually invest in. Um, and you know, of course the other side of the spectrum is really true, um, belief in, alpha upside alignment with your true north and or a very specific numerical goal, right? And so I think on the numerical goal side, um, the challenge that arises there is that it does somewhat, it's the opposite effect. You're almost too pigeonholed. Climate and, um, you know, sort of climate challenge and, you know, the planetary challenge broadly is bigger than just GHG emissions or carbon emissions, right? And so having a stated goal of a gigaton of GHG is sounds great um, and, and is a good goal to have, but you end up having to say no to a lot of other really great climate um, solutions, planet solutions that don't contribute to that goal. Um, in particular, even right in the fairway of climate change, um, there's this entire area of climate adaptation that a lot of funds miss because it doesn't give them a notch on their belt around the GHG emission goals. Similar to finance, like you go in to every investment, ideally, if you're a good venture investor, you go into every investment thinking this is going to be the unicorn that's going to return my fund. Otherwise, you shouldn't make the investment because that's the name of this business, right? And if you're an impact venture investor, then you should also say this is going to be the unicorn that gives me my gigaton. But similar to um, you know the the finance side, you actually don't know which ones are going to be your unicorn on finance or impact on financial or impact. Um, and in fact, there's generally going to be a correlation. The financially successful ones are going to also be the uh, impact successful ones or the financial unicorns are also going to be the impact unicorns. But that's not necessarily true. Um, you could have 
uh, a, a modest outcome financially with a significant impact outcome or a significant impact outcome or a significant um, finance outcome and lower impact outcomes than you were expecting. So is your fund successful or isn't it, right? And an emerging trend is tying carry, the, the, the way that we really earn our money in venture, tying carry to the impact output outcomes. And so it's going to be really tough over the next few decades when we started observing this lumpiness, right? You hit the financial goals, but you didn't hit the impact goals. So you don't, you don't get what you earned on the finance side, or you hit the impact goals, but your fund didn't really make that much money. So what did you really win? So it's, it's going to get a little messy with some of these like gigaton goal oriented firms. Um, again, nothing against it, but some um, level of flexibility around what the various impact metrics are, I think are still being learned and absorbed. Um, and frankly, it's really hard. Like uh, the challenge with going beyond one true north numerical goal is then you're doing a bunch of companies that are targeting different kinds of impact. GHG, frankly, is just the easiest to roll up and quantify, but we struggle with that as well. Like how do you quantify water quality and safety? How do you qualify adaptation? How do you qualify air quality? You know, there's, and then how do you lump them up to a giga, whatever a level of impressiveness, right? And so there's still a lot of, like, um, yeah, there's still a lot of um, path making that has to happen on the impact measurement side. I don't think anyone's doing it wrong in setting an intention. Um, the only thing that sort of annoys me is when there's complete drift. Yeah. Yeah. I think the intention setting is is one piece of it. And I think that's generally positive. I think it's always tough when you have you know, it's primarily the the limited partners, right, who are who are responsible for wherever their source of money is that are that are establishing some of these these thresholds. And I think we as an industry don't necessarily know the impact of that on on decision making for financial returns. I think you said it really well. You can do well, but not have a great fund. You can have a great performing fund, but not hit the hit the targets that you wanted. And um, we just, you know, even even you guys, ten years into this, um, we just don't have a, a good sense of what that that looks like. Um, but yeah, I I, um, I would agree with you. I think generally we need to have that north star. Speaking of the things that you know you have seen your companies do, you gave us a really good um, anecdote or, or I guess adage earlier, which is you want to back founders that are building climate companies that customers would care about, even if they didn't care about climate. I, I really like that, that framing. Um, what are the other few things that, that you have found um, founders underestimate or, or maybe uh, don't give enough credence to when they are building companies in, in this space, major pitfalls, so to speak, uh, that founders run up against when they are building climate companies? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> Um, Let's give us two I or mean, three. <laughs> it's the nature of building anything meaningful, right? There's just so many pitfalls, so many near-death experiences. Um, you know, if anyone tells you they were uh, an overnight success, either they were sleeping the first decade um, or they're lying, right? The success success that came quickly just hasn't seen its first major fall yet. And sometimes that first major fall, if you had an immediate pop right out the gate can be can be deadly almost by by guarantee um we see a lot of that we've seen a lot of that in venture not just in climate but in venture over the last few years giants that came out of nowhere from sort of super seed rounds and you know and then super follow-on rounds immediate unicorn status that are now falling flat on their face i mean the nature of 
building anything successful is trials and tribulations and going through um, losses and pitfalls and blocks. So, I mean, it shouldn't have to be said to an entrepreneur that a lot of your job is going to be facing a lot of failure and a lot of rejection. You know, that shouldn't be a surprise. So maybe it doesn't qualify as an answer to the question. Um, I'd say, but number two attempt to answer is how important the sort of early team um, that you choose is. And that's not just your co-founding team, but also your investors who you're taking advice from. Um, I think it's a personal truism and personal sort of lesson I learned. Like, it doesn't matter how well you're doing on everything else. If you have the wrong people around, you have the wrong one bad person giving you bad advice that you're paying attention to, it can throw everything else off. So being scrutinous, it can be tough. You, you know, you have to come from somewhat of a place of privilege to be able to say no um, when you need resources and you need people working on stuff. But you really have to find it in yourself to say, I'm willing to wait, go a little bit slower for now to wait till the right person or that I'm working with the right people. And that can be especially tough when you're trying to raise capital. But as we've seen, taking capital from just anyone um, is just as bad as not having raised at all. Um, it doesn't matter how much money you raise from, from that anyone, right? You really should be doing your diligence. It's never been a better time, an easier time to do diligence on VCs. There's so much public sort of like testimonials and scoring that's done on VCs these days, whether it's crunch base ranking, NFX signal ranking, um, founder's choice rankings, like you can do your homework, you should, um, because you are literally marrying these people. Even if you ultimately, you know, quote unquote, divorce them, it's more of like a separation. They're still on your cap table. They could still band together and have influence that's detrimental to the company. So it's just like, it's one of those things that people don't think about when all they're trying to think about is resource, um, sort of bring in the first, the first resources. Um, that's two. And then I guess three is probably specific to some climate companies. It's that, um, you know, obviously yes, engineering and scientific breakthroughs are important, but going back to what we said uh, earlier in the conversation, nothing matters if there's no one who actually needs or wants your product. So getting out and talking to customers is one of the most important things you can do. It's also how you differentiate yourself when you're talking to investors, because you'll be the smartest person in the room about your customers' needs and wants. And, uh, you know, I think that some founders, not all founders, um, but some founders would benefit from spending more time with customers before even before going out and raising money um, so that they understand they have a rock solid bulletproof understanding of what it's going to take to actually sell and scale the, the, the offering. And often it might mean learning what, where the product needs to sort of iterate, um, even in its earliest stages. I mean, those are the, those are the three off the top of my head. No, I, I love that last one, especially because of, you know, where we sit in helping our companies with their storytelling, their narrative building, their, their PR eventually, um, that customer validation piece if a founder has done that, really spent time with their customer, really has, you know, stellar references, obviously, uh, you know, helps when we're going through our diligence process. But if they've done that customer validation, the storytelling and narrative building gets so much easier, right? Just something as simple as if you know who your ideal customer profile is, you've spoken to them, you understand who they are, then we can help you craft a narrative that, that finds a hundred more of that customer or a thousand more, right? Depending on, on the kind of business you're in. And, and it, it is interesting to me, uh, you know, in my career as an investor, how many folks come with really great scientific engineering breakthroughs and haven't validated if this is what the customer needs, right? And, and I always hear this, this uh, Henry Ford quote, the, um, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. You know, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things that people hide behind, I tend to find, right? I love when somebody says, 
I spoke to 100 people. Yeah, three of them said a faster horse, but the rest of them have validated that the thing that I'm building, somebody's going to pay for one day. Yeah, I mean, and, and asking people what they want is not necessarily the smartest question to ask, right? Like, hmm. you know, uh, yes, ask someone what, you know, who owns a horse, what do you want? They're going to tell you a smarter horse. But, you know, asking them what, what, what would you want to improve about your horse if you could? Well, it'd be nice if it stopped pooping everywhere. It'd be nice if I didn't have to feed it all the time. Uh, you know, like there's a ways to get around um, and breaking out of the dynamic. I think a biggest challenge of selling things, of marketing things, is you have to change people's framings and their perspective and their behavioral defaults. And that that's not an easy job. And that doesn't come from asking them simple questions that are going to generate the same answers that their current way of thinking is generating. So again, you asked what the hardest things are. Understanding customers is probably right up there as one of the hardest. Yeah, spot on. Um, I guess where we'll wrap because we're coming up on time. Um, you know, you you've had a career as an operator. You've now been doing this for a while as an investor. Um, we always love to leave folks with with good advice that they can take with them. Um, what's a piece of advice that has stuck with you uh, throughout your career, either as an operator or as an investor? Uh, well, I mean, I. I didn't get a lot of advice as a, as a weird self bootstrapped entrant into venture. Um, I did run into Ben Horowitz once who said, invest in people, um, which mm. I think is a half truth. You, you have to invest in markets as well. Um, <laughs> but you know, since it's the only advice any VC has ever really offered me, um, I'll give you that uh, from Ben Horowitz, invest in people. Invest in people. Fair enough. Um, and, and then I guess we'll, we'll take it on the flip side. Uh, if, if you're feeling generous, what is the biggest career mis mistake that um, you felt you made and what, what have you learned from it? What has it taught you? Yeah, I, one of my previous companies, I lost a bunch of customer data because I was sloppy about data migration and backup. Um, it stung really, really hard that decades later, it's still my go-to answer. Like, you know, treat, treat your customers, especially their data or the product, what the trust that they've handed in you, handed on to you, um, as the, you know, second most valuable thing or third most valuable thing after your life and your family's life, right? Like trust is such a hard thing to get and it's so easy to lose and it's almost impossible to recover. And, you know, it, I had to learn that lesson with a really geeky, in a really geeky anecdote, but it translated to so many other things. It's like when someone trusts you with something, treat it like gold um, and make sure that if somehow you have to break that trust, it's in a way that is recoverable with a backup. I, I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully that. No, no, no. It's, you know, it's, it's so interesting. You mentioned that because your, your previous answer talking about customer validation, I think it's, it's all sort of one through line, right? I, I tend to find that the, best founders that we work with, um, they go through the process of validation, they establish trust with the customer, they tell the customer what they're going to do, and then they go and do it. And it's this amazing thing that happens that 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 trust that, you know, the customer puts in you, you know, we, we can we can quantify it as customer retention as net dollar retention. But ultimately, like there is financial value to that. It, it's as simple as understand what they want, tell them what you're going to build, build it for them and, and maintain that trust. So I, I don't, you know, yeah, a geeky anecdote as it is, but I think it, it has a through line through a lot of our conversation today, which is climate business or no fundamentally build stuff that people want. And, and, you know, 
when they give you their trust, like treat it as sacrosanct, like it's a big deal. I mean, that is your brand, right? Like at the end of the day, you peel everything else away. A brand is what people perceive you um, as relative to how much they trust you versus someone else they could go with. And, mm. you know, if, 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 the, if, the, if the pillar of your brand is not, the biggest pillar of your brand is not trust, then you really don't have a brand. Damn, that's I, that's bars. Uh, I guess we'll we'll close only on um, what question I like to ask everybody as we close. You know, in in the climate world, there is a lot of gloom and doom out there. So, leaving us on a hopeful note, what is something that gives you a lot of optimism uh, as it pertains to climate innovation and the fight against climate change? Yeah, I mean, one is that there's less gloom and doom than there was when we first started. Um, in venture and in, in climate investing, um, I'd say the other is there's never been as much um, uh, government um, and regulatory alignment. Um, and I'd say the, the, the third thing um, is that, you know, technology, again, readiness has gotten to a state where we really just have to figure out distribution and finance. And we might actually be able to at least buy some time on, on addressing the climate climate change challenge. Um, and that, that, that gives me hope. And, um, you know, I, I think more than anything, uh, we really quickly went through despair around climate when people were like, oh, this is real. And very quickly to hope of maybe hmm. we can fix this. Um, and so that was very encouraging for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly I am um, so grateful that you decided to join us today. I'm, I'm excited to find some opportunities for us to work on together. And I'll say my, you know, I love to leave my, my takeaways at the end of every show. My two takeaways from our conversation is one that really, no matter what business you're building, um, the team and the people that you put in place early um, have a massive impact on the trajectory and success of your business. And even sort of one rotten apple uh, can can uh, you know ruin ruin the batch, and so advising founders to spend time and, and really think about who they have around them in the earliest days. And then the the second is sort of the the last bit of our conversation, which is that customer validation, that customer trust, um, really applicable to a lot of companies, but especially here where uh, there's a lot of excitement around climate, um, there is interest from people around it. Uh, there is also going to be a lot of trust placed in you that you are going to say what you're doing. And so as a founder, if you're listening to this, um, treat that that customer relationship, that, that customer trust as, uh, as paramount. So those are my two takeaways. Sony Blue, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we're excited to see more from Third Sphere. And uh, you guys already have a decade of amazing success behind you. So here's to uh, another decade ahead. Thank you very much. And here's to yours as well. That's all for this week's episode of Climb by BSC. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Just a few quick shout outs before you go. Our thanks to Stonely Blue for sharing his experience and expertise with us today. Learn more about their fund at thirdsphere.com. Special thanks to Credo for their help in promoting and producing this episode. To visit any part of today's conversation again, you can find the full transcript on vscventures.com. Our thanks to Josue Ramiro for posting these every week. Lastly, if you've listened this far, please leave us a rating on Spotify or review on iTunes. It only takes a few seconds, really helps us out. And as far as I know, it's still carbon neutral. Well, that's all for now. We'll see you all next week on Climb by VSC.